Again, I want to say uh, welcome and thank you for being here today. Um, it is uh, it's a real pleasure and a joy to um, get together with y'all each month to have these lunches and um, and I'm especially grateful to the Lord for uh, the speakers who uh, get up here and put themselves in the firing line to share something from their lives of faith. Um, today we've got somebody from far off and um, um, over the pond, you might say, from Charleston, across the uh, Cooper River. Um, we've got uh, a friend from Mount Pleasant, uh, Dan Legree. Um, and Dan is uh, a member at um, East Cooper Baptist Church. And um, before I have David Taylor come up to introduce him, I just want to say one thing. Um, whenever I invite somebody and thank God they say yes to come and share their testimony with us, um, I, I give them some information about what we're doing. And, and this time something happened that I, it may have happened before, but I don't think so. And that is that Dan sent me an outline of what he wanted me to kind of look at that he had to say. And I was just amazed. Um, I, I thought, I need to get Dan to come back every month and do a teaching for us because this was, was put together so, so well. So, Dan, we're grateful to have uh, your um, northern influence, northeastern influence on us here in Charleston. And, David, thank you so much. David's office is just right half a block from here, but thank you so much for... Um, you guys for coming over and uh, giving us a taste of, um, of the other side of the river. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm very excited and honored to be here um, to hear my, my friend Dan Legree speak, and um, I think you guys will be blessed by it. Um, give you a little history of Dan and I's friendship. Um, I moved to Charleston in 1998. You know God's involved in this when I see the man who hired me to come to Charleston, Tom Waring, here today. So in 1998, I um, heard Dan's name. Uh, he was then and is now a top CPA here in our community. And um, Dan and I became business colleagues. And um, we developed a friendship. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the things I've always loved about Dan is if I call Dan with a complex tax issue that I can't figure out, um, he might know it immediately or sometimes maybe not and my day would go on my week would go on and I would resolve the issue and move on and about a week two or, or two weeks later I would get a call from Dan and he didn't quit thinking about it so he would uh, even though it was not his client or not his issue he would just keep going because he wanted to know the, the answer um, he's a very thorough man in that regard so we became close business colleagues um, over the years that became a social friendship we would uh, share clients and see each other at events, and uh, we became good friends. And um, as the years went on, um, to my great benefit, Dan became a mentor to me. Um, in, the business, in the business world, in the business community, I'd sometimes reached the point where I uh, kind of lost my sight or couldn't see things because I was so close to them. And I would call Dan up, and Dan would always give me great advice. So our relationship went from business colleagues to close friends, to a mentor relationship, which I value greatly. I didn't always listen to Dan, and I always should have. <laughs> and, um, and a few years ago, the history of that friendship and that relationship 
became the most valuable of all. Um, somehow or another, Dan and I realized that we were siblings. We were brothers. Um, we were brothers in Christ. And that's the cornerstone and the foundation of our relationship to this day. Um, it's the most beautiful relationship because of that. So I'm totally honored here today because I'm here with my good friend. I'm here with my um, business colleague. I'm here with my sage mentor. And I'm here with my eternal sibling, Dan Legree. I've spoken before, but I'm, can y'all hear me? Okay. I have hearing aids, so I can't hear me half the time, but that's okay. Um, David and I, it, Buster Brown at our church in East Cooper says everybody should have two or three 3 a.m. Waffle House friends. Those are men that you can call at any time of the day or night and say, I need help. I need to see somebody. I need to talk about something. And they'll come and say, I'll be right there. David Taylor is one of those three or four men I could count on to call. I've been blessed with others. But David calls me a mentor, but he's every bit as much a mentor to me as I've been to him. And God has enriched my life by bringing him into it. Uh, but today, I, I, I got to looking at the calendar, and when Reverend Avent told me I thought it was the first Tuesday, I thought it was the 6th, and then that was the beginning of Lent, so it moved to the 13th. So I quickly looked over at the basketball calendar because I was trying to figure out how many men would be here with March Madness getting underway, and I think there's a 2 o'clock game today. And I assure you, you'll be out here long before that 2 o'clock game starts, whether you watch it or, 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 or have any interest in it at all. Uh, but today, I'm, I'm going to take a passage, and I have to be careful, or anyone has to be careful when they take a verse and they don't give you the entire background, so somebody could say, well, maybe it was taken out of context and it wasn't presented right. But I think as I go through this, you'll understand where my heart is and where my thoughts are and why I wanted to talk to you men about it. And it comes from the 12th chapter of Luke, and it's verse 48. If you looked in Matthew, you would find it as part of the Olivet Discourse. But in the book of Luke, it's in chapter 12 with a group of parables. And we'll get to the parable in just a second, but I want to give you the verse because it's central to what I want to talk to you about. And in verse 48, verse 48 has three distinct parts to it. So I'm going to give you basically my context is from one-third of that, which is verse 48b, the second part of it. And it reads, For everyone to whom much is given... From him, much will be required. And if you think about that in the context of this group right here, the men that are represented, y'all have all been given much. And as a result, whether you like it or not, God expects much from you. Okay? All you have to do is, is think about the country we live in, the state we live in, the city that we're blessed to be in, and everybody wants to come here, and unfortunately we can't get some of the people to leave that we would just as soon as never come here to begin with. 
But nevertheless, once they're here, there's an affinity for this place. And all you have to do is you ride downtown and you look at the church steeples that dominate the skyline here and you understand the rich heritage that the families who founded this town, and it's called the Holy City, I think, as much because of what the founders did and why it was put here. Okay? It was a, it was a place of an oasis for religious freedom. Now, we have the freedoms guaranteed by our Constitution of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom basically to come and go as we please. And if we take that for granted sometimes, and yet we really shouldn't. We were talking at the table about missionaries in other countries and how when they come to visit or when we talk about them, we can't even use their name. Everyone here is sitting with a name tag on, and I'm pretty sure that name tag reflects who they really are. If it was a missionary here, he probably A, wouldn't have on a name tag, or B, wouldn't have on one that would reveal who he or she really was, and if it was being filmed, their face probably couldn't be a part of that. So think about that for just a minute. And yet they voluntarily go out to do what God has called them to do, because they feel like they have been given much, and much will be required. In the parable of the, uh, that's recorded in Luke 12, 41 to 48, is called the parable of the two servants, and it was a faithful servant and an unfaithful servant. And the faithful servant was found when the master had left to go on a journey that that faithful servant went about doing what he was supposed to do, not knowing when the master would return. The unfaithful servant decided that, well, it wasn't going to be today, and it wasn't going to be any time soon, and he quickly became distracted and started doing other things. And, of course, the master comes back and finds him in want. And so that's the part that leads to verse 48. Now, there's only two stewards there, but verse 48 mentions three people. You wonder where you got two stewards and a third person. And so the, the first part, it says, which is where we're looking at, the person who has had a lot and yet did nothing with it will be beaten with many stripes. But then it says the one who didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the understanding, is still held accountable, but he won't receive the same kind of punishment. So that's the steward who's not present in the parable, but he's still mentioned at the culmination. So whether you've been given a lot or given a little, there is going to be something required of you. It may not be as much, but there are requirements of God to each of us for what he has entrusted to us. Now, in this parable, the, uh, Jesus told us, and I think it was primarily geared to the disciples, but as only Peter could when he started it, Peter said, is this for us or is it for somebody else? It was almost like Peter said, I want to know how much I should really pay attention to this or how much I can tune out, if you will. And so Jesus, instead of answering that, went into this parable. And so it kind of nailed Peter right between the eyes, whether he wanted to or not. And it says that 
this par parable, he tells us how we are to live until either he returns or we die. That's going to be in the end what's going to happen. And so how are we going to conduct ourselves? How are we going to monitor ourselves? How are we going to be faithful during that interim? And I'd like to give you several things along that, and then, and then we're going to deviate and, and, and look at a couple of examples and how that manifested itself. Basically, these will be Old Testament references that we look at. But the first thing Jesus required and the first thing the faithful servant did is he lived for him. That is, what Jesus is saying, the first and most important thing is for you to live for him. The second thing we are called to do is if we're living for him, we must be obedient unto him. I mean, there have been a number of times when I knew what Jesus wanted me to do, and I just wanted to say, can I do that tomorrow or the next day? So I haven't been faithful in that all the time, but nevertheless, I'm thankful for a patient and loving God who has been very forgiving throughout my life. And finally, he says that we're to be diligent about what we do. That is, be diligent. Don't be half-hearted. Don't take a job and not do it to its fullest or exhaust what you can possibly do to reach the proper conclusion. As, as faithful leaders and shepherds, and I'll use those terms interchangeably so I won't continue to use them as we go, but if I talk about a faithful leader, if I talk about a shepherd, or I talk about a servant, I'm talking about one and the same. It just depends the context it's given. As leaders, we're going to be given respons <coughs> responsibilities and opportunities. And what we do with those responsibilities and legacy will be our testimony and our legacy to the Lord. We're reaching out, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. Those men who have gone before us, we're standing on their shoulders. And we're standing on the legacy that they had established for us. So we're some part further up the tree than they were. But it had it not been for them, we would be not nearly as far along. So remember that that legacy that you're developing, and it's your legacy of the glory of him, that you're going to pass on to the generation that comes behind you, and hopefully we will build them to where that history that we have and are blessed to enjoy will continue on uninterrupted. Now... We are called by grace through faith, and he has calling us. We were talking again about it there, and sometimes we get the idea, well, God, you ought to be really happy I'm on your side. Make it a more dangerous comment, I think, than you could ever say. And you hear people would think that all the time. God's going to be happy with me. What is he doing? He said, no, I'm, I expected that of you. That was required of you. You aren't giving me anything that wasn't mine to begin with. You aren't giving me anything that was not first given to you. So don't look at it from that standpoint. But we are called to be faithful for his glory, for our families, for our friends and our coworkers, and for those less fortunate of us. 
Are there, there any Presbyterian brethren in the house maybe have any Presbyterian background? Then y'all appreciate this. The, the shorter catechism, the very first question is, what is the chief aim of man? And what is that? Number one, to glorify God. And number two, to enjoy Him forever. And so everything that comes into our life, that's what it should be a focal about. What can we do to glorify Him? And as a result, if you want real joy, you're not going to find it in this world and you're not going to find it in possessions. You're going to find it in a closer relationship to Him and it will manifest itself and it will grow almost like a nuclear reaction. It will continue to get bigger and more profound as you go. Now, so we're called for those things, but we're also called to. We're called to lead with our hearts captured by Him. We wouldn't be very good leaders if we aren't subservient and recognizing that the one who put us here is the one who's going to guide us through it. And number two, we're called to make the glory of the invisible God visible to all to whom we come in contact. They ought to be able to see you, to hear you, to observe you, and say, that man has walked with Jesus and he's worthy of me paying attention to. And that person who's looking out is more concerned about how we act as to what we say. They want to see it, and then when you talk to them, they have the privilege to believe it. Now, we are given great talents. We're given knowledge, education, we're given experience, and we're given skill. But even more so, our leadership will be affected by the condition of our heart. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Again, we go back to the glory of God, to the joy that He brings. And the desires of our heart should be not what some people might think it to mean. Oprah Winfrey once said, that was her favorite verse, and she said, because look at what all I've got, millions and billions of dollars. And I looked at it, and I said, I don't think she has a clue what the desires of her heart really ought to be, because what's going to happen to Oprah Winfrey? Not knocking Oprah, she's a fine lady, I think. But nevertheless, one day she's going to die. And how many satellites are going to go with her, and how many millions of dollars, and how much weight will she have gained and lost, and you know, whatever. And the answer is, none of that's going to matter. So I think she missed the entire mark as to what Psalm 37.4 was asking us to do. Now I'm going to go to the Old Testament pairings that I did. And, and this probably comes from my tax background a little bit. And that we're often told in the Internal Revenue Service Code about what things you can do. Then we're also sometimes given a negative that says, you can't do A, B, C, and D. So if you say, well, it doesn't say I can't do this. No, well, what does that mean? Well, it means you can do that. So sometimes it's easier to frame the code in a way that it speaks in a negative, or sometimes it's, they want to be more emphatic given the way our minds work, and they, they give it to you in a positive so it's very clear to ours where it's 
no, lefts no doubt this is what's able to be done, and if it doesn't fit, it's outside. So it, as we look to these Old Testament, two Old Testament heroes and two Old Testament antagonists, we're going to look first at the relationship of Moses and Pharaoh. And we're called, we're asked to be more like Moses and less like Pharaoh. And let's take a look at what that looks like. We need to be humble and not haughty. If any of y'all have looked at the story of Pharaoh when Moses came or any other person came into his midst, what had to happen? They had to be granted a viewing of him. And he ruled the entire nation of Egypt that way and persecuted the nation of Israel as a result of it. Why? Because he was Pharaoh and he could. Moses reluctantly came back after 80 years of God preparing him to lead the nation. And Pharaoh's response to him was much the same way until God finally showed Pharaoh. And if you read that, you'll see about four or five times in there God will, it will say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And several other times it will say that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we have to be careful that if we aren't diligent and watchful, that there will be a time, hopefully for no one in this room, when God will say, I will give you over to those things that you really want. And the second thing is, while Moses was assertive, he was meek. Pharaoh was assertive, but there wasn't a meek character, a bone in his body or nerve in his body at all. And the third thing, and this again wouldn't apply to Pharaoh, be prayerful and not prideful. Pharaoh didn't think he had to answer to anybody for any reason. Moses more often than not, when you go through the book of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and given some of the things that happened in those books, you'll understand why Moses probably spent more time praying than he did leading them around in, in the wilderness because of the events that transpired. Moses knew he wasn't capable of doing that on his own. And the last thing about this is that Moses learned that he walked with the people, not lord over the people. Again, Pharaoh lorded over, and he got his power by just brutality and just blatant hatred and disregard, whereas Moses truly loved the people. And when you look at the story, several times God got fed up with the nation of Israel and said, Moses, move out of the way. I'm going to destroy them, and I'll make a nation out of you. To which Moses said, Lord, please don't do that. For your glory, your glory will not appear to the masses of people. Forgive your people. Now, I don't think God ever changed his mind, but the emphasis there was that to reveal something about Moses, that he wasn't looking out for himself, he had truly bought in to the idea of worshiping the true and the living God. Now, I saw that in my practice about 20, a little over 20 years ago. Uh, most of y'all have gathered by now. I'm a CPA, and I've had 44 tax seasons before I finally surrendered. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. 
But I've been working for 20 or so years, and the whole idea around tax season is we do probably 60 or 70 percent of our entire year's worth of revenue in about a 60-day period of time. You say, well, wait a minute, tax season lasts longer than that. But think about it, the month of January is lost because you don't have anything to work on. The way our government works has been in the last several years, we hadn't even had a tax code but forms and instructions until mid-February to work on them. So then we had to mid-March to do corporations and partnership returns, and then we had April to do individual returns. So think about that. that's a very short period of time. So I was misguided in my mind that said, it, it'll be okay, I'll just, you know, God will understand. I work seven days a week during this period of time, but I'll go back to church and uh, after tax season, and I'll be there faithfully before tax season. And when I'd get there on Sunday every day, I would, uh, on Sunday, you know, the office would be quiet, and I'd cut on the radio, and I would either have a sermon, or this was pre-internet days. I, I go way back, and we've I've laughed at myself over that, so I wouldn't have been able to find it on the internet if there was one. But anyway, you could get a, you could get a service on the radio. And so I was listening to that. And one day, one Sunday, I, I just was struck, and God said, this isn't what I want from you. And I, and I have this conversation with myself, but, you know, I'm, I'm listening to your word. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to i got to do this work. He said, you're not listening to me. And so that very day, that day, I shut my office, and when I walked away from it, I never went back on Sunday again. Now, I'm not a strict legalist, and I think that there's going to be any kind of a measure of how many times did you go to church or that you have to be there every Sunday, or in any way am I implying that works is a part of our salvation. But it goes back to the idea of what does God want? He wants your heart. And he knew right there that my heart, he wasn't first in it because I was doing something else that I thought was, you know, and you can justify it anyway. So I'm trying to take care of my family. I'm trying to put us in a position where I can give more to you. I, you can justify it any way that you want to. But that isn't what he wants. He said, I want you. I don't want your things. They're mine already. I don't want that. And we never opened the office again. I never walked in the office again on Sunday unless I needed to make a copy to go to church to teach Sunday school. And I'm old enough they still call it Sunday school. I don't know what y'all call it, but it was Sunday school for me. And as a result of that, I, I started, then the internet comes to play and I started getting devotions. And I, I have devotions from three or four men who I hold very dearly in my heart, and I get them every day. I get something from C.S. Lewis. I get something from Charles Spurgeon. I get something from David Jeremiah, and I get something from John Piper. And so I started, everybody who would come into the office, that's how I start my day, is when I get in the office before I open a tax return or open a file, I go and read these devotions. Now, I've already spent a quiet time, but that while I had the quiet time, then on the way to the office, my brain would get all rattled about things that really didn't matter. And so I used that to bring myself, my heart rate back down, even though I was sitting in a car, and, and, and do it. So I started sending out a devotion, and every person who's come into our office since that time, I've got a list, and I send it out every morning to them. That's how their day begins. Now, I don't, 
I'm not going to sit there and force them to read it, and we don't gather together and uh, go over it, but I'm there to talk to them about it if they want to. And as a result of that, it's grown over the years, and never have I had an employ uh, employee, co-workers, really what they are, because I don't think they work for me, I think they work with me, Never have I had one say, no, I don't want to do it. And I make it very clear there's you know, no conditions, no strings attached, no reason that you have to do it. But if you would like it, I'll provide it. And so over the years, we've had people come and go, and that list has grown. But what it's led to is any number of people coming by the office and say, Dan, have you got a second? I said, sure. My mom is sick. My dad's on his deathbed. My sister's having a baby, friends having surgery. I said, well, why don't, we come, why don't you come in and let's pray about that for a minute and know that we will be praying for them as the events unfold. Before I left to come here today, one of the young men in the office, his wife had a baby about six, five or six weeks ago. And as I was walking out of the office, he was walking in and I said, how, how, how's mama and the baby? He said, well, mama's broke out in a rash. Would you pray for her and for me? Because if, if any of you are, some of you won't remember, but if any of you are recent, recent fathers, new mothers have a very short appreciation for their husbands at those times, okay? So he said, would you pray for her and pray for me that the rash would go away? And so it was my privilege to do that before we left to come down here. So I think that's, that, and, and you know, please understand, I'm not saying I'm Moses. I probably have many more characteristics similar to Pharaoh. But that's the embodiment of what God wants for us to do. The next one we're going to look at for just a few minutes is try to be more like David and less like Saul. We all know the story of the nation of Israel looking around and deciding that they needed a king because everybody else had a king, and God got very upset with them because he told them, I'm your king. But if you look at the last verse in the book of Judges, it says, every man did that was right, did what that which was right in his own mind, for there was no king found in Israel. And why was that? Because the people of Israel had turned their backs on letting God lead them. So God relented and he gave them a king. And the first king was Saul. And Saul started out pretty good, like a lot of people do, but it didn't take Saul a very long time to become enamored with who Saul was. And then ever so slowly, but ever so surely, he drifted away. So then they were called for the second king, and they went and they found David, the poor shepherd boy. You know the story? It goes to uh, his father and says, I want to see your sons. God has said that the king will come from there. And so he introduced him to his first son. And, you know, in the uh, nation of Israel, that first son was supposedly the number one son, and he got a double portion. And Samuel looked and I said, I don't think that's it. So they went through all of them, and it was no, 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 no. And they finally came to the shepherd boy. And that shepherd boy would become the greatest king in the nation of Israel, and he's one whose name today is still held very high by the nation of Israel. And depending on what your eschatology is in the last days, there's an opportunity for David's throne, David to come back and occupy his throne again. 
But what David did in, in, in the most, I think it's one of the most famous Bible stories, and, and whether from childhood you hear it, is what happened when the nation of Israel came up on the Philistine army and Goliath walks out. Now, I think of Goliath in terms of Shaq O'Neal. He's about the biggest human being I can compare him to, except that Goliath was two feet taller than Shaq and probably weighed 200 pounds more than Shaq. And so Saul said, I ain't going out there. He said, would any of y'all want? I'll give you whatever it is you would like to have, and you go out and, and defeat Goliath. So David is sent by his dad to find out how his brothers are doing, and he overhears the conversation, and he looks and he says, what's wrong with y'all? God is your leader. What, you don't, Goliath's nothing. And so Saul tries to heat David down. And Saul was a big man. He was probably six and a half feet tall, three feet short of Goliath. But I mean, he was a big man for that time. So he tried to burden David down with all of his gear, regalia to go out to battle. And David said, I don't think so. Well, we know how that story ends when David slew Goliath and cut his head off. And he did it because he said, victory today will come from the Lord. It was the Lord's hand, not David's. So we need, as a result of that, David relied first on his prayer life and then his, on his strength. He didn't ask his brothers to go with him. He didn't ask for anything else. David went out and did what he was supposed to do. And what he believed to be what God wanted to happen, which was the Philistines would fall because he had said so. Not because of anything they had done, but God had said so. And the other thing about David that we need to remember, because we'll, we'll all fall short in this way, is that when we sin, we need to repent before God and trust in his mercy and love for our restoration because he is faithful to give that to us if we but ask. And the, the last piece, I'm going to take that to a personal level. In the summer of 2017, I was diagnosed with cancer. And my wife and I had been married about 43 years, and we were skating right on along, had two grown children. We house was paid for, had a successful practice. But let me tell you, that rocked our world. So I went through the fall of that year, and the second busiest time for accountants is September and October when extensions go through, and you finish out the returns. And I wouldn't tell anybody in the office what was going on because I didn't want there to be any distractions to getting the work done. But then I weighed that against the idea of how can they get ready for next tax season if something happens to me in this surgery which was on November the 7th of 2017, because while I was told there's a very high degree of a positive outcome, when you're hearing that and yet you know what's happening inside of you, you can, they don't always, they tell you, but it isn't any guarantee and everyone is different, so we don't know how you're going to react to what occurs. So right after that, 
my wife and I prayed about it the whole time. And the surgery happened on November the 7th. And so by the time I was even remotely beginning to recover, tax season was on us. And God did an incredible thing that year, that, which would have been 2018, that can only be explained by him working in, in, in that firm. There was work that we typically didn't get until a little bit later in the year that came in earlier during the year during that period in January, which is really kind of a respite when there isn't anything to do. And yet there was enough work because I couldn't work those hours that had peaked out in February and March. Physically, I simply couldn't do it. I'd have to go home at 2 or 3 o'clock every day. So instead of working 60 or 70 hours, I was barely making 40. And then the work came along, and as we're getting to the end, and all of a sudden what you expected to be this great peak and didn't know what we were going to do, all of a sudden people started calling and said, I'm going to need an extension this year. I'm not going to be able to get the work done in time. So throughout that entire tax season, with me working a third less hours than I typically done, God's provision had led it to work out that nobody had to pick up the slack for me, that we got the work done, but there never was a day that went by that two or three people didn't stop in my office and say, is there anything that I can do for you? So I'm a little over a year and five months out of surgery. I had to have another one in December. But God is good. But at the same time, he told me, I took care of this one for you, but this one's it for you. He said, you've had 44, and that's all I'm going to give you. Don't ask for the 45th one because you aren't going to have it. So that's why I have the privilege of being here today. Otherwise, I'd be strapped down looking at some fool corporate return trying to figure out why somebody did something that they know they couldn't do. And it wasn't going to be legal, wasn't legal, isn't legal, and wasn't ever going to be legal. But as we go to close, I, I want to uh, give you a couple of things. And, and one that I learned from the first part of being more like Moses and uh, less like Pharaoh is that we as leaders and as shepherds, it's more about the actual leading or the management or the giving of tasks or the maneuvering of the business. It's about taking time to have a kind word or an encouraging word to those people who are helping you. To just take time and listen. Because I don't care what you say, I don't have time, that's simply not true. Most of the time you can accomplish it in 30 seconds or 45 seconds. And during that time, I want you to listen. We're called to listen intently, and we're called to listen, called to listen intentionally so that they know they are important to us, that we hear what they have to say, and that we care about them as an individual. And I guarantee you, you will find the people that you work with will be amazing and appreciative of that opportunity. Now, in closing, I'm going to give you the response to what is required. As we said at the beginning, unto whom much is given, much will be required. Well, only God could have done this. 750 or so years 
before Jesus uttered those two parables, if you go back to the book of Micah and look at Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, we're going to find the answer. But to set the stage a little bit there, when Micah was writing his prophecy, the northern ten kingdoms had gone over as far as kings. Most of y'all are familiar with the analogy of Ophir. No wins. They had zero kings who were faithful. So that, those ten tribes were about to be wiped out by the Assyrians and to this day not to be heard from. So Micah's basically speaking to the southern two tribes of Judah and, and Benjamin. And they are saying, because they become... It's amazing how, the, how disobedient they could come. And they said, but Lord, what do you want? We'll give it to you. We'll give you a sacrifice. We'll give you an offering. Just tell us what you want, and we'll give it to you. And in Micah 6, verse 8, this, this is what it was said. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. Go forward to the 1248b. What does the Lord require? God's about to answer. And he said, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If y'all can do that, y'all will fulfill everything he could ever want for y'all. And I appreciate the privilege of being here, and I thank y'all so much.